Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from BBC Children's boss Cheryl Taylor, Viacom CBS International Studio Kids Chief Nina Hahn, Hopster Co-Chief Executive Mickey Hoynatska, and Secret Story Draw Campaign Manager John Mason about the increasingly crucial role of diversity and inclusion in the children's TV business. The issue of diversity rose to the fore in the TV business last year, with developments in the US sparking Black Lives Matter protests around the world and shining a spotlight on inequalities across all aspects of society. The children's television business was no different in facing up to its shortcomings in terms of representation, both on and off screen. But broadcasters, streamers, producers and plenty of other industry constituents have been working hard in this area for some time. Viacom CBS went a stage further, proclaiming a no diversity, no commission policy across its networks, one among a number of initiatives designed to create a more inclusive industry and final product for consumers to enjoy. Viacom CBS International Studios Kids Chief Nina Hahn, BBC Children's Boss Cheryl Taylor, Hopster Co-Chief Executive Mickey Hoynatska and Secret Story Draw Campaign Manager John Mason spoke with Nico Franks about the work they're doing to ensure kids' TV programming reflects and is made by the diverse society in which we live. My name's Nico Franks and I'm editor of C21 Kids. So today we're talking opportunities for inclusivity in children's content and we've got a great panel to discuss that topic and how that is the key priority for children's commissioners not only at the moment but long into the future as well. So let's begin with the panel introducing themselves. Hi I'm Cheryl Taylor, I'm Head of Content for CBeebies and CBBC. Hi I'm uh, Nina Hahn, I'm the Senior Vice President of Production Development for Nickelodeon and also the Head of Icom International Studios Kids. Hi I'm Miki Hoynatska. I'm the Chief Content and Creative Officer for Hopster, which is a BAFTA-nominated uh, kids' TV channel. Hi there. My name's John Mason, and I'm the Managing Director of uh, Jolly Wise, and I'm also the uh, creator and campaign champion for uh, the Secret Story Draw. Nina, Cheryl, and Mickey, you've all actually had new kind of roles, changes to your roles recently, so we'll touch on those. Beginning with you, Nina, so take me through your new role at Viacom CBS. So um, the new role that uh, I'm just taking taking on board is the the head of the Viacom International Studios kids business, which is an exciting new sandbox to play in and one that's incredibly timely and very important for the company to be involved with because what it essentially does is expand the Nickelodeon footprint from making content for our owned and operated linear channels and allowing us to pivot and become the kid experts at making content across any buyer and for any buyer in the kids space, whether it's a third-party buyer as a streamer or as partnering with different arrangements of other previously considered competitive partners, we can now open up and take the kid expert hat and make content for them as well. And it runs across the same genres that we work across in terms of preschool, live action, animation. But what it also does is it it opens the aperture of what uh, we can make from things that are not only Nick branded, but also could be anything else. Thanks. So lots of opportunities to work with lots of different partners. Yeah. 
And Cheryl, so big changes for you as well. Thanks, Nico. Yes, this is a, a, a moment in time for me because after eight brilliant years at BBC Children's, I'm moving on to different adventure, but fear not. We have a brilliant new director, Patricia, who's joined, and she will be talking about the new structure and how we will be commissioning all your fantastic shows in the future very soon. And Mickey, so changes afoot at Hopster as well. Yes, so I have become recently the co-CEO as well, so I have to do um, more of the non-so-fun things. But um, we also have acquired recently our competitor in the US, Curious World. So my new role is to develop and run both of those brands. So that's quite exciting as well. Uh, John, no changes to your role as far as I know? No, no changes to anything uh, since March the 13th, actually. But I'm sure that's true for everybody. It seems that, of course, with events over the summer, inclusion and diversity have become front and centre for all aspects of the industry. The children's industry is, is not alone in that. Could each of you who are commissioning content take me through just how big a part inclusion and diversity is for you going forward? I think at the BBC, and particularly in BBC Children's, in the past we've had a, a I think, a a reputation for being very focused on on on-screen portrayal. And I think the big, big change for us is is now realising that we need to do a lot more, both about the people creating the stories and the lived experiences um, on which we'd like to base more of our content, but also off-screen, you know, the diversity of the people making the content. So that's a real focus for us. Um, It comes at a time which I'm sure my colleagues on the call will recognise when, because of COVID and lockdown, a lot of kind of already commissioned shows are being moved which obviously hoovers up space for new commissions and the more inclusive shows that we'd like to commission so for us what we've done kind of almost as an interim strategy is commission several monologues all written by diverse writers and directed by diverse directors or first time directors are mainly coming from companies that we've not not worked with before and these are dramatic monologues and accompanying them are a season of mini my lives which is spin-off from our, um, as you know, well-established My Life documentary series, also to be made predominantly by first-time directors and by companies that are new to us. So our long-term goal is obviously to find more content um, to commission from these same companies and work with them in the future so that a bigger part of our budget, essentially, is going to diverse content and diverse indies and our diverse supplies in-house as well. And yeah, we're going to talk about how in the different genres of kids tv in the different formats there are opportunities potentially more opportunities for inclusivity and diversity than others so for example the monologues that was a quick way to get real children from diverse backgrounds on screen and working with them as well yes i think it's more it's more the writers because those are those are fiction but across the pieces you know whether it's in the dumping ground or whether it's in shows like blue peter our kind of record of participation across the board is well renowned and it's absolutely part of our every day makeup to reflect kids in the UK and as many different kids from all walks of life and from as many different cultural backgrounds as we possibly can. And Nina, you're working across Nickelodeon International, which is obviously part of Viacom CBS and Viacom CBS announced its no diversity, no commission policy over the summer that began in the UK and now is being rolled out internationally. So tell me a bit about that and how that works in in tangible details. Yes, I mean, I think I sort of wear two hats in this conversation, as you say, one is the Nickelodeon hat and one is the, the Viacom, Viacom hat. You know, in, in terms of Nickelodeon, just quickly, I think it's as if we've been, you know, you, you're training for the Olympics years and years and years and years and years and then the Olympics actually arrive. That's sort of how it feels for Nick when it comes to diversity and inclusion because it has been something
something that has been the cornerstone of the brand from day one, both in front of the camera, behind the camera, and every way around the camera, and with all of our partners. So for us, we feel quite to be in shape for this particular race um, and for the long goal of making sure that there are diverse and inclusive voices, however they may be represented across all of our content and across 177 channels around the world, because diversity means different things in different cultures. So navigating that patchwork quilt has been great for us because the authenticity of reflecting a world in which a kid lives in at any given moment in the timeline is something that has been what's made Nick quite a different brand than many others. So from a Nick perspective, we continue to do that and continue to grow those green shoots that have been in progress for so long. On the Viacom side, to your point as well, there's been an enormous toggle to speak to in an actionable way, what are we going to do to make a difference and not necessarily get so caught up in the lingo and the details of it all, but just actually take a step forward doing better than we've done before. And that's first big step was no diversity, no commission, which was something that Channel 5 and Ben Frau had given birth to. And it just caught on like a house on fire across the company because it made such total sense. How we are rolling it out, we're trying to sort of keep it at the nexus point of trusting our partners to understand what it means to do something better than you've done it before with respect to diversity and inclusion, making sure that you're giving voices to people who would not have had voices in your production before, again, in front or behind the camera or in any way involved in the, in the production. And some of that will also come with some clear boundaries and clear guidelines that Viacom is currently working on, which will allow people to make sure that we've hit these markers before we sign off on budgets, before we commission things. And so that we can have, a, have an honest health check going across the productions to make sure that they are delivering diversity and inclusion. And again, it's important to remind that it is across so many different countries that we are going to work both on a macro level of what DNI means, but also on a customized level of what it can mean per country. Yes, because I suppose it is reliant on independent companies outside of the Viacom CBS business, kind of putting that, getting their things in order and, and working towards that goal. So in terms of what's the kind of, I guess, the bare minimum in terms of that you what you're looking for? I think for the moment, and again, I think it's very important to look at this as a living process because I think it will change, it will morph, it will get better as time marches on. But the two most important seeds to bring to the table are, as I said, one, making sure that across your production, you are demonstrably giving a voice to people who may not have had the chance to have a voice. And, you know, that's quite an important aspect of it. And number two, taking a benchmark of wherever you are on the timeline of, of being a better representative of diversity and inclusion and asking yourself to go one more step. And so everybody is at different levels at the minute and it is a moving target to a certain degree. But I think if everybody starts and looks at their own house and says, okay, well, actually we could do this or we could add more diversity to the writing room or the idea itself needs to be more diverse or the whatever it is in your particular situation, go one more step and demonstrate that. So those two elements are the most, we found the, the easiest way to get started without, you know, sort of getting into a situation where you're just asking, putting diversity uh, asks on companies for diversity's sake, which isn't what we're after. And Mickey, over the summer, you put a call out for content that would commemorate Black History Month and also the Black Lives Matter movement as well. So how successful was that call out? It was helpful because we got content that we didn't know about before. But at the same time, it wasn't easy. So we wanted to celebrate Black History Month the year before, but we literally couldn't find content. And I mean by content, I mean content where Black characters are at the forefront. It is not just about history, but it is about role models 
schools and showing kids they can do anything. They can become vice president or scientist or uh, pilots. Um, so it wasn't easy. That's why we made a public call for that. But it all actually started 18 months ago where we commissioned a study looking into the most popular kids TV shows in the UK. And we looked at the representation of disability, of working class families, of LGBT, gender stereotypes and ethnic minorities as well. And the report clearly showed that there's still a lot to do because, for example, very often the way disabilities are shown are something sometimes uh, they're related to a villain. So like with Lego Ninjango, uh, the villain has got a prosthetic limbs, for example, right? Or um, working class families are really uh, underrepresented when you look at preschool kids TV shows, everyone works and lives in a palace or speaks with a really beautiful British accent. Only six shows out of 50 had a black or Asian minority lead character and it's still there's there, there are no shows with the main one was normally somewhere in, in the background and of course there are almost no shows where you could look at different types of families or same-sex parents so we commissioned it 18 months ago mostly to use it also for us to determine what our strategy would be and now wherever we commission content we have to make sure that it's not just about ethnicity but also no gender stereotypes that the working class families are represented not everyone lives in the palace that we show different types of families and things like that. So I think the um, there's still a bit of work um, in front of us, the industry, to make sure that the inclusion and the representation is really wider. And we really look at what also my colleagues just said in front and behind of the camera, because it's also little things like making sure that if you're creating a show and one of the characters is a black girl, you find a black talent to voice her, for example. And it's not about the accents. It's just about giving also talent the chance to do something. So um, that's what is part of our mission. And we've, we've been very serious about that. Yes, definitely lots of work to do, not only on screen, but off screen as well. You're <laughs> on board the Secret Story Draw campaign. And John, you can tell us a bit more about that. The campaign itself is, is one of optimism and opportunity. What we've just heard from uh, some of the commissioners is that obviously there's already a kind of a no diversity, no commission type policy coming from Nickelodeon. And that's going to change the way that companies put teams together to respond to a creative call outs from broadcasters just generally but I think there's some fantastic top-down stuff happening there also needs to be some bottom-up stuff what I wanted to create was a campaign actually opened up opportunity for uh, black Asian and uh, minority ethnic illustrators and animators particularly to get into the industry the industry itself when you talk to it which I have been doing for the last four months now know there's a problem and say there are opportunities and there are jobs in the industry but it's very very difficult to find the talent that they they want to attract. Uh, So I'm hoping that this campaign signposts the doors of opportunity to the talent that's out there, that they come through this campaign. We get to see some incredible art and those young people take up the internships that will be offered as prizes uh, for the winners. So tell me about the process. So it's all about pairing new talent with established talent. We've got 15 of the country's greatest children's writers. We've got, so we need more. So there's a call out there to anybody who's got, who's sitting on a couple of great writers. They're going to write short stories of three or 400 words in length that will be secret and secret that we posted on the website in secret so no one will know who the authors are then our talent comes along responds to that story creatively with an illustration or an animation that's then submitted a panel of judges from the children's industry and we select winners and there's a beautiful reveal on the night uh, ideally at an award ceremony but you 
you know, we're in COVID world, so that might well be on, on Zoom, where we actually pair the author and the illustrator together, which will be really magical. But that aside, what I'm committed to is the opportunity being then available for that young illustrator animator to take up some meaningful paid experience in the industry. That's that's what I'm committed to. There are lots of other ways that we can skin this. I know that Milkshake are very keen, uh, as are the BFI, to turn some of the some of the winning entries into potentially short form animated content that we can we can broadcast. Uh, that would be like, that would be a cherry on the top of the campaign, as far as I'm concerned. But like I say, I'm committed to getting people that we don't know about right now into to the industry through one of these doors of opportunity. You mentioned seeking more writers. What other areas are you looking for to um, to kick off the campaign? Writers is key. I've got some fantastic industry support already. Ardman are on board, Fourth Wall, Dean Egg, Jellyfish, uh, Hopster. Uh, I could go on. I've got. I've been on. I've been on phone. I've been on Zoom pretty much nonstop since July talking to people. I've got lots of great support, but I want more. I'd like more. So uh, anyone uh, who's, who's a company who wants to uh, offer an internship to to a talented illustrator or animator that comes through this competition, I'd love to hear from you. And yeah, these campaigns don't run on on, uh, on air, so you know sponsorship. Anyone who's willing to offer that, I'm I'm all ears as well. And I suppose in an ideal scenario, we're going to see these top down initiatives and the bottom up initiatives kind of meet in the middle to really kind of create a thriving ecosystem for talent from lots of diverse backgrounds. But I'm wondering if there's potentially something kind of inherent in kids TV that is preventing progress. Potentially the need for it to be super super commercially viable in lots of cases and kind of reliant on the toy industry for that and also I suppose the more culturally specific something is potentially the less likely it is to travel and traveling is the key thing for lots of kids TV content so what does the panel think about that is there something that needs to inherently change in the kids TV model I think with streaming more and more kids consuming content that way content travels automatically in a way because players like us or Netflix or others are looking for content that is global. It's not very useful for us to have a completely different offering. And I think, especially for preschool kids, I don't think there's a problem with cultural differences because part of early years curriculum always talks about diversity. So uh, at least from from our perspective, we have the same shows everywhere. And yes, if uh, when we have our Black Lives Life Matter, Black Life Matter uh, song and theme online in, in October, of course, we got some backlash, mostly from in the US, for example. But that's still okay, I think. So I think the the industry, I think at least from the streaming world, I think it will be the content travels much better, especially in the preschool world. I don't think cultural specificity in any way needs to mean that stories aren't popular. Mm. I mean, just thinking about we've got a, a fairly new show called Jojo and Grangram, which is, you know, essentially about the relationship between a little girl and her granny. And that's the beating warm heart of the show. But there's a huge amount about her granny and actually her great granny's cultural background, which is Caribbean and talking about life in, in, in St. Lucia, which just adds great texture and colour to the story. But essentially what makes it relevant and engaging is because many preschoolers recognise that relationship um, between a young girl and a beloved member of her family. So, as I say, I think as long as you get your stories right and, and warm, engaging characters, cultural specificity and any other kind of diverse specificity is never a barrier to popularity as long as you tell stories in the right way. What I think I'm hearing you say, Nico, though, is this question mark of your hypothesis that does the commercial aspect of making preschool 
IECP and some of the other elements fly in the face of the DNI initiative of making something once and using it everywhere. Is that your question well, mark? Also in the sense that the toy industry is notoriously risk averse and it's, reluctant to change. I mean, I think the car before the horse thing always has to hold. hold I mean, you have to make sure that you've got, as Cheryl said, you've got to have an amazing story, an authentic story and a set of characters that you buy into and believe in. And that word authenticity is an inch wide and a mile deep. I mean, you really have to deliver deliver on that. When you look from a Nick perspective, obviously I could say three words, Dora the Explorer, and you have it all wrapped up into one. And I'm sure all of us could have examples of incredibly successful preschool shows that also have a huge commercial side to them, as well as messaging and, you know, all the things that we feel are quite important to box to across the heart of it and the emotion side. You have to be super premeditative to make sure that all those ingredients stack up because obviously you're also running a business as well. So making sure that you are box ticking against the first and foremost, which is the love of the piece of content, the emotional ticking clock that's involved in it, plus how are you going to deliver on a toy, plus how are you going to have you know your KPIs met, which can really work together as long as you start from the beginning. I mean, Paw Patrol is another one for us, which um, has a character in it who is diverse. So there's a lot of ways in which you can launch it and do it. But I think what you can't do is go about your way and then kind of Velcro to the back end of it, any of these initiatives. Speaking specifically about animation, obviously a lot of kids and preschool content features things like animals or vehicles, things like that. And what's your strategy going forward in terms of when it's a show about vehicles or featuring animals, for example, showing diversity? Because I was writing, for example, um, a couple of weeks ago about a new show. It's all about vehicles and one of the vehicles is missing a wheel. So that's <laughs> to demonstrate, you know, uh, inclusivity in the sense of this the vehicle has a disability, but would actually the more important thing be to actually show a child with a prosthetic limb in that animated series rather than a car? I think, yes, I think it's one, it's important that kids see themselves. So of course, it is desirable that they see themselves, their family, where they come from or the way they speak. And I think if you think about diversity in shows that are more fantastical or have animals or this, like you can still deliver diversity off screen by the creators or by accents. I mean, you can do that, but I think you should probably focus on where we actually show kids and their families and where they're coming from because I think again like the diversity should be on screen and off screen as well so we should not go and just sort of box ourselves in now everything will have to be like that because it's also the creators the voiceover artists the commissioners that created as well we're working at the minute with uh, Laura Henry Elaine she's part of the secret story draw campaign as well and I think what what shocked me was actually that Jojo and Grand Grand represents the first animated uh, show I think I'm right correct me if I'm wrong it's the first animated show featuring black characters the UK's first preschool animated series featuring a black British family thank you that's what that's what I was getting at yeah thanks for correcting me. Uh, but yeah and I think what, what what Laura talked about was you know diversity being having characters reflecting back to the kids that are watching it so that they can see themselves on screen is really important but it's also important for, for children who, who aren't black or Asian or, or minority ethnic you know the United Kingdom's full of very small villages and places that are tucked away where children can go throughout their day without seeing somebody who looks different at all. So having having that diversity sort of reflected back on screen in physical form, not uh, I think there's places for talking vegetables, I really do. But I, I also think there, there's, there, there could be a lot more shows that actually reflect back, you know, hu- you know, human characters who are diverse. There are quite a few. I mean, if you think about, for example, Dennis and Nasha, there's a character in that gang, you know, who uses a wheelchair. And I'm sure Nina and Nikki will tell you of other shows that they've got 
what. So just going back to my previous point, as long as the character is engaging and has a legitimate part of the story, I don't think that any of these diverse elements that you mentioned, Nico, are in any way a barrier to creativity or popularity. And Jojo and Grand Grand, as well as animation, that also features real children. It's got everything. It's got everything, that show. Lovely live action inserts, which essentially mirror the central narrative and show, as you say, real life kids going about doing the small activities and learning just as Jojo and her granny do. It's delightful. I'm not sure if you're all aware, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm wondering how that is impacting this strategy and this mission on inclusivity and diversity. And and Cheryl, when we were speaking earlier, you mentioned actually Zoom is actually kind of reducing barriers of entry for a lot of people that you haven't worked with before. Yeah, well, just pick out, I was really keen to hear what John was saying, you know, especially about training. And I think across the piece, we're all aware that in the sector, we genuinely need to get more people into the sector, you know, from the ground up and excite people about careers in TV and especially in animation, I think. And across the piece that I think the kids department, all areas of the business have really responded. Um, And we've got some great diversity inclusion groups that have been formed who are watching content, feeding back to commissioners, feeding back to writers and producers about areas that they're concerned about. And one of the things I was really um, in talking to more people, it's funny what you get used to in your job. You know, of course, commissioning is just part of my day job and as is pitching. And so many people, young younger members of, of staff said, you know, well, God, we can't wait, you know, in 10 years time when we can attend a commissioning and a pitching session. And I just thought, oh my God, it, there's a lot of barriers to entry. And of course, it, under Zoom, I just rang several people up. And to be fair, at first, our indie suppliers and some of our in-house producers were a bit like, I'm not sure about this. But we just said, can we open up pitching sessions so that younger members of staff can see what's happening? And so this has been going on, um, as well as actually opening up read-throughs so that all members of staff invited certain read-throughs. So you don't have just an audience of two, you have an audience of kind of 50. And it's been great. And at the same time, as some of the BBC staff have been attending those sessions, our indie suppliers were all asked to bring along younger and more diverse members of their team, whether that was the PA or the guy working in the tape library or whatever it was. And it was a much, much more interesting session as a result. And uh, everyone thought it was great. So I suspect that this is one area where, because it's so easy to do in Zoom, whereas you might not want to pay for 20 people to come up to Salford for a face-to-face pitch, I think in future we will adopt Zoom as a more inclusive way of pitching, for example, so that we can include a lot more people. I mean, the upside to the to the downside of COVID is exactly what Cheryl's saying. It's a really, I think it's an almost a, a call to arms for all creative people to think how to do something differently because it com- everything has completely changed. So now the rules of engagement are, are sort of off of, of, of the way we always used to do it. And now you're allowed to make things differently, work differently, team yourself up differently. I mean, even at Viacom, we are now starting a program of reverse diverse mentorship where we're pairing up a young, diverse, more junior member of the staff with a very senior high-end member of the staff. And the mentorship will go in that direction versus the other direction, um, which again is going to allow people on the senior levels to sort of get real with what's actually happening in the world of a much more junior, diverse member of the team. And that that has trickled into the way we produce and into the way we talk to the partners that we work with and, and everything else, all because sort of all rules are off because we've got to keep this machine going. And so it's for creative people, it's been a, it's been quite amazing and quite mm-hmm. freeing because you can you just get away with th- 
things you weren't allowed to get away with before, I suppose. To speak to both Nina and uh, Cheryl's point, and I think the point you've said is, is, is right. I mean, uh, all three of you are commissioners and what Zoom's done is, democrat- is, is there's been a huge democratising effect for actually a campaign like the Secret Story Draw would never have gone off the ground in a, in a world where it wasn't COVID because I just simply wouldn't be able to get a hold of the people that I've been able to get hold of since July. Mm. I'm having conversations now with people in their kitchens while they're having a cup of tea as opposed to Cheryl's point having to schlep up to, to Manchester and get to the BBC and then you know it, it, it's I can have three or four really great calls in, in one day with really really fantastic people all decision yeah. makers and yeah. uh, that's because of that's because of Zoom. Um, the BBC's writers room are doing a new voices kind of festival uh, inviting a lot of new writers to come and, and kind of learn and talk about writing for kids and you know so for example we've got Anthony Q Farrell who as you know is, you know writes um, Secret Life of Boys for us and he'll be beaming in from the States now normally if we were doing a, a, a writer's initiative there's no way he would necessarily fly over to attend but you know we, we're going to get him alongside other kind of you know celebrity guests and they're really happy to spend an hour on Zoom talking to new writers but um, being there in person would pose problems so John's absolutely right and Nina's right it's transformed the industry in that respect I think because of COVID it, it did create more opportunities I think most things are happening quicker in a way because we don't wait for a meeting we just pick up a call but also like in terms of costs it's interesting because now people can't travel to a sound studio to record something so they started building their own little recording studios so suddenly I feel like it's almost easier like with animation with with voice with changes as well because you just have a more direct contact with people and also in terms of the team like we do have quite a lot of all company zoom meetings and we're discussing a lot of things together because it's just easier where before maybe it would be a smaller meeting in the meeting room so no there are definitely upsides to it and something we should definitely learn and keep in terms of upcoming projects that people are working on so nina with nickelodeon so there's the twisted timeline of sami and raj so that's a nickelodeon international and nickelodeon india project so tell me a bit about that yeah this is an exciting um one of those projects that you're you know you have always wanted to do and, and never been able to do it so for the past five years or so the nick india team and our team have been talking about this phenomenon where at least for nickelodeon a lot of what is successful in india does not work for the rest of the regions and what it was successful for the rest of the region doesn't work in india so in india ends up making its own super successful content and we make our content and yet we're one and want to fly the nick flag so we began a conversation about five years ago saying how could we come together and make something once that would work for everyone and so um, as we developed a project we started to realize that the, the common and unifying aspect that we could work on together would be the notion of a big indian family living um, in this case two sets of cousins living next door to one another and all of the things that go along with what it means to be a big indian family what's interesting also about that is that we have obviously casa grandes which does that in terms of the latino side of things and loud house which does that in terms of just sheer number of kids which is 11 kids in that family so the family aspect became something we felt was quite universal and quite interesting to to work on and obviously working with the nick india team made it incredibly authentic to do this and so we have built this project from the ground up focusing around sammy and raj were cousin brothers who and they have a whole story to them and antics that they get into it's produced in india it's written with an indian writing room and a western writing room it's voiced by indian characters but in uh, american indian by descent in the u.s and some in india so there's a huge collage in front and behind this project to keep it authentic and to keep it real and to also discuss the intersection of what it means to be indian indian and what it means to be of indian descent living in another country 
country, which represents a whole other way of talking about culture and who you are. And so we've ended up being able to pull all of these pieces together to create what's going to be a fantastic romp with these two characters and their families. And Cheryl, you mentioned Anthony Q. Farrell earlier. So are you working with him on other projects as well? Yeah, he's, um, I mean, he he's always really busy. I suspect that half the people on this call are probably uh, doing something <laughs> with Anthony because he is both brilliant and prolific is, and the nicest man in the industry, I have to say. So alongside his um, Secret Life of Boys duties, um, I know he's working at, across a number of other comedies, but he's also talking to us about um, an animated sitcom based on uh, his experiences growing up. So alongside these monologues that I was telling you about and our Mini My Lives and various other projects, that's one of the new developments that we're super excited about. And Mickey, I don't want to get too hung up on the negative side of all this because I think it's really important to remember that this is, you know, it, it's all positive and it's going to create lasting change in the industry, what's happening. But I think the negative side of the backlash that Popster received for so both putting on content to do with Pride and content to do with Black History Month. How did you respond to that backlash? Because I think it's important for others to kind of see that, you know, it's not necessarily the end of the world when you get yeah. a backlash. It was first with our Pride content where we created the original stories showing different kinds of families. And we had a song about love is love and all of that. And we got quite a bit of a backlash, again, mostly from the States about this is not for kids. How can you talk about these things? But we had, we were quite well prepared with guides for parents as well, how to talk about it. We're not talking about sex this time. We're just talking about different kinds of families and what it means. Although we had an episode as well about trans kid as well, but it was all, we were working with a charity. So there was all very carefully written. So it was for preschoolers, but also just showing real stories because those stories were based on real stories from diversity model charity. So we had a whole list of how to respond, what language to use, but sometimes just we were saying we are an inclusive and diverse brand. So maybe Hope's just not for you. So we had people unsubscribing and that was fine because I think for brands like Hopster, we have our own audience in a way, which we call the uh, progressive parents based on market segmentation we did. And we have to have a point of view. We, we are not a huge mainstream brand or channel. So we had people cancelling. We had people complaining, but we've got through it. And then when we had our month uh, monthly theme of, of black, celebrating Black history, and we got, got a lot of emails from angry parents saying that this political preschoolers should not be learning about topics like that. We were responding, well, I think it's okay. And we work with educators and it's all age appropriate. So we are not very apologetic about that. That's part of our mission and we make a stand and we believe in the content and we know it's done the right way for preschoolers. So we do not apologize. Nina and Cheryl, what experience have you got in, in that area? And yeah, when, when things get targeted as being political, what's the response there? For many years, whenever we put out a piece of content where we're reflecting a person's life or celebrating someone's life that people think is unsuitable for their child to watch. I mean, the stories are numerous. And I think the simple answer is that, you know, you just have to look at social media to look at how many different people are expressing themselves. And we are there to reflect the world. We have to reflect the world as it is to our viewers. Otherwise, everything we do is a fiction. And that's not what we're there for. So our simple response is that everything that we show in that respect is real life. And we want to reflect the world to educate and inform our viewers and to help them make choices um, and grow up into happy and healthy and responsible citizens. I think from the Nick side as well, we even take it one step further, which is we're the ambassadors for that messaging, not the decision makers for that messaging, which we 
really comes about by the research that we do. We do a huge amount of real-time research, consumer insights, show research on a very regular basis, all of which comes together to inform us what path to take with the messaging, where to go, how to depict something, when is the right time to show or say something, when is not the right time to show or say something. And I think that element as a North Star for us has helped us make those creative decisions that help kids navigate these choppy waters at times. Additionally, back in 1990, which is a long time ago, Nickelodeon created Nickelodeon Bill of Rights for kids, a kids' Bill of Rights. And it's a small batch of five or six bullet points that are our guiding principles for how to work, how to talk, what we feel kids are all entitled to across any place, north, south, east, or west. And it's a very interesting piece of work that helps us put all of our content through this Bill of Rights lens to decide how we want to go forward with something. And again, written in, in 1990, and fast forward to, to today, and every single aspect of it is completely accurate and completely relatable today. So we have a combination of a lot of different things. And I think the last one is always to remember that, you know, racism doesn't start at age four. It's so lovely when you look at the young kids that they are agnostic in a lot of ways. And I think the messaging and the way we work with them and talk to them is to build that lovely aspect up before they start to change and, and form opinions that aren't okay. So there's a bit of celebration in those younger years as well that I think we take a lot of time and pride in. Exactly, because kids are not born prejudiced. It's a learned behavior, right? And they they don't mind seeing people on screen. They don't look like them. For them, it's just always learning. And after like they finish preschool, like something happens. But I think yeah, celebrating this and celebrating them being so open and lovely and, and acceptable and, and they, then them accepting everything is, is important. Okay, well, that is all we have time for. But obviously, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of, of this. And um, yeah, obviously, lots and lots of work still to be done. Viacom CBS International Studios Kids Chief Nina Hahn, BBC Children's Boss Cheryl Taylor, Hopster Co-Chief Executive Mickey Hoynatska, and Secret Story Draw Campaign Manager John Mason, speaking to Nico Franks. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.